My name's Karma. I'm Omer. And I'm Sadia. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. This is the third part of our series of discussions titled Islam, Identities, Belonging, Phobias. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and also remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. So let's pick up where we left off. Where did you guys leave off? I wasn't a part of the last discussion. Mahmoud was here. Now that Mahmoud's gone, I think I can let out my anti-Arab sentiments. He's, he's not here to defend himself. Karma's here. Yeah. You're Arab. But she has internalized the anti-Arab racism. Has she? I think I have. Oh. Have I not? I feel like Mahmoud has too, but I don't know. I'm like partially joking, but I'm not completely joking. And I hope you guys will understand. I hope listeners will understand. And let me try to explain, okay? First of all, I want to thank the Arab people. Uh, for a really big realization that I gained thanks thanks to them, thanks to you. Yes. And this realization was, you know, I don't know if you guys remember back in like the early 2000s, you know, as or at least when I was a young kid, you know, you just like spend a lot of time on Wikipedia. Maybe that's just because I'm a nerdy brown kid. I don't know. Uh, yes, that's definitely the explanation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought everybody did it, uh, but maybe it was just me. Um, but you know, you'd like just learn random things. And I remember going on the, the Wikipedia for Arabs. And if you go on the Wikipedia for Arabs, you learn that, well, there's lots of different kinds of people who refer to themselves as Arabs. So, uh, Moroccans are Arabs. People in the Arab Gulf are Arabs. Syrians are Arabs, you know, lots of Syrians. If you see them, sometimes you can't tell, hey, is this a white person or is it a, <laughs> you know, a not white person? And, and then, of course, many people from Sudan will say that they're Arabs. And the realization that this uh, allowed me to reach is that things like race and ethnicity, they're things that are sort of in flux. They're not straightforwardly defined. And it allowed me uh, uh, to arrive at a very early sense of a, n- a non-essentialist approach to these things. So that I would, I would like to thank the Arab people for. And then I moved to, I spent a little bit of time in the Arab Gulf. You know, I actually spent a year in Saudi Arabia and living in Jeddah on, the Red, on the Red Sea. Your first mistake. And then I've spent time elsewhere in Oman for a while. And then, you know, you go around to some of the other places like in the UAE and stuff. And you just like, okay, do these places really need to exist? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, okay, so then let me say that as a brown person, like as a South Asian person, what happens in the Gulf, of course, is that lots of migrants from South Asia are there uh, doing manual labor. They're doing a lot of the construction work and they're not treated that well. So... I was there, you know, when I first was living in Saudi Arabia, I was like a young man. And, you know, you just pick up a kind of like general resentment. Not that I'm an overt racist, but there is, a, I feel, <laughs> 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 there is an underlying kind of uh, sentiment that I carry to this day, uh, resentment against the Arab Gulf. Well, I don't think that's completely unjustified because, you know, the I feel like, I mean, I feel like wary of sharing the story, 
But um, see, like when we first moved or like actually before we even moved here. Uh, okay. I was talking to my dad and like in this, like I had this like Arab pride when I was a kid. Like, yes, I am Arab. You know, when someone asked me like, where are you from? I'm just like, I'm Arab. I don't got like, I don't even tell you where I'm from. Like, it's this like hangover from like pan-Arabism. Right. And, and my dad goes like, I don't do that. And I go, why? Like, but like, I thought my dad was also kind of a, a pan-Arabist. And he goes, no, you know, it's because when you say Arab, that could mean you're from Saudi. It could mean you're from the Gulf, hmm. right? And we, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I, like, I don't want to be seen as someone from the Gulf. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. I get why. Um, and, you know, it's like a lot of, of relatives of mine uh, growing up moved to the Gulf for job opportunities. And we related to each other differently after that, right? It was just a very different kind of, and like, there's there was a lot of aspects um of, of that that felt uncomfortable for the rest of the people that didn't move. And what I learned later on in life is that my like my uncles and my father didn't move, not because there weren't opportunities where they could have made a lot more money, but because there were like these like d- like dignity reasons in their mind, right? They were like, we know if we go there, you're treated as dispensable. You're treated as, ed- like they are giving you all this money. So you then you are like forever kind of, um, you have to be grateful to these people who will, are going to treat you badly and treat you like you never actually belong there, even if you build a home there and a family. Um, and so this was like my also understanding of the Gulf generally uh, growing up. So yeah, I don't think that's, I think that makes sense because within the Arab community itself, there are these discussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Arab Gulf is like this economically advanced and culturally backward place. It's just a shame. <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's true. Like, I remember, like, I was just like, look, I like, I will never go to Saudi Arabia. Okay, I'm a woman. I am mm. not considered a human being there. Essentially, I. Why would I ever set foot in that country? And I've had a lot of you know other Arabs and Muslims be like, but but it's an important place, you know. And it's like sure, but like no. Like, and people, see, see, there's like this, there, I feel like there's this general understanding that like, yeah, you know, these places are not the best. People are not treated very well there. There's a sort of kind, like a entitlement that people like generally have there that it puts a lot of other people off. So I have cousins, for example, that grew up there. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> include this part. I don't, I don't think my cousins will ever listen to this, but... <laughs> But there is an entitlement, right, that mm-hmm. people grow up with, like, when they're there that, like, just, um, and a way of relating to other people that is not very dignifying, generally. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it might be worth going into why that is, so it doesn't seem like we're just blaming people arbitrarily for this or generalizing in this way. Um, and, and what made these countries the way they are, mm-hmm. potentially. I don't know if we want to go into that, but... As someone who has spent a bunch of time in the Gulf. I would say, obviously, people in the Gulf are like anyone else. They're human beings. They have similar desires um, and interests that any other human being would have. The conditions that exist politically and socially for people are very constricting. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in Saudi Arabia, they have the matawa, the police, the religious police. Yeah. They come around and they tell you, ah, it's time to pray. Go pray. And then, you know, you have to go to the mosque and yeah, okay, I'll pretend to pray. Uh, so you have to do that kind of stuff. And, you know, we know what part of the reasons for this is. This is the, the Saudi family. 
the royal family and its control over that oil wealth in that country, its you know horrific treatment of dissidents, and of course its um, its collaboration with the imperialists and the support that the imperialists give, including you know the Canadian government and in, in selling this horrific regime weapons so that it can put down its own people and so that it can carry out its horrible horrible war in Yemen. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, we have to keep those things in mind uh, and not just sort of portray people or, you know, whether they're people in the Arab Gulf or wherever else as homogenous, badly cultured, entitled, oil-rich assholes. Because uh, no, they're not that. Obviously, there, there are, are large, large sections of those societies that, are, that actually don't benefit from that oil wealth. And, and of course, the women in those societies, even when they are wealthy, are not uh, not treated like human beings. So, Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you speak about the uh, Gulf in particular, but I guess Saudi Arabia more generally, the issue of class comes in as well because there's so many migrant workers, often from other Muslim countries, coming in to be either sort of construction workers or domestic help or, you know, sort of all sorts of labor that the Arabs, uh, you know, the Gulf Arabs or the Saudi Arabs wouldn't want to perform themselves. So when Omer and I had gone to Dubai, we had a layover for like 12 hours and we were walking around the streets. And from walking around the streets, all we saw were um, South Asian men and Filipina women. Mm-hmm. And so if that was the only exposure we'd had to Dubai, we would think that that's what those are the people of, uh, of Dubai. But it's not until you go like into the malls that you see like more Arab people inside. And so the sort of stratification racially and class-wise is quite intense. Well, yeah, and there have been like horrific accounts coming from those countries. I mean, there was the domestic helper that wanted to commit suicide because her passport was taken away by her employer, who's like the person who's, who's how she's staying at. This happens a lot over mm-hmm. like in a lot of places that use domestic help, but it is particularly horrific in the Gulf. Like there's like just absolutely no, like these people have no rights at all. Um, One thing that really irks me, maybe it's not that big of a deal, but it just really irks me is the like Burj Khalifa. It's like that, like, it's like, okay, you're building this like glass, like huge, like huge building. It's like the the tallest building in the world. Is it the tallest building in the world? I think so, yeah. Like one of them maybe, if not that, but like, you know. And it's, it's in the desert. So clearly it's going to get dirty, like a lot. Like the dirt is going to not, like you're not gonna have this crystal clear glass. And so what they'll have is people every day repelling in these like, like literally life or death situation. Like if the winds are too strong, they will die. Okay. Just to clean the fucking windows of this glass building. So the people staying in this like seven star hotel can have like a clear view. Like it just makes zero fucking sense like the whole the everything that happens there just seems to like not make any sense at all so yeah i mean it's it's worth talking about and it's worth i think mentioning like when when we are talking about islam especially um and the kind of islam that is practiced by these uh like these ruling families over there that have all of this money and and like indulge in like ridiculous things and have created like horrific systems that when you want to make a criticism of that that could be confl- like how that has been conflated with um, elements of Islamophobia or potentially going there. And people will be very wary of being like outwardly critical of these countries because they're they're worried about that, of that being, uh, you know, showing a lack of progressive values or anything like that. 
And I think the same thing can be said about when, you know, leftists are quick to critique regimes like Donald Trump or Stephen Harper as being Islamophobic, but they openly court the Saudi regime. That you mean Trump and Harper would openly Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I mean. That they support, yeah, yeah. Openly uh, you know, support Saudi right. and like and and so we should be more careful about how we dole out our accusations of racism and accusations of like of this sort of discriminatoryness that you know there is uh, certain inconsistencies and of course like you know that are explainable uh, on economic and like policy terms but that leftists and even muslims themselves when we're just like oh you know this is such a islamophobic country it's like well you know what do we mean when we say that because that doesn't apply to saudi arabia yeah i do think it's interesting as you guys were talking about in the last segment you can see sort of the, I, I don't know, to use this term, I, I always feel weird using terms like this, but you know, the radicalization or whatever that can take place with the alienated young Muslim men. And it's interesting because there's something about contemporary North American culture that is is causing this, you know, uh, whether it comes to white supremacists or young Muslim men, there is something about going down some internet hole and finding yourself with a Kalashnikov at the end of it, or some, uh, I don't know the names of guns. Uh, assault rifle. Assault rifle. And yeah, there's something scary that's going on. But you can, okay, you know, you have to try and understand this. I, I Not to, obviously you can't justify any of it. Um, but you have to try and understand it because it is human. And and what is what is the term that you like to reference, or the oh, the phrase that you like to reference? Sadia? Nothing that is human is alien to me. Yeah, nothing that is human is alien to me. What is that? Or some Roman poet who said that? And yeah, so okay, so how has it happened? I mean, and I, you know, one can understand that some alienated young Muslim man who is feeling like he's under attack from broader society, broader culture. Um, can find refuge in an identity and in a um, a religious system or a religious doctrine that has, as as we were talking about earlier, has a offers a critique, a ready critique of uh, modern society. So I, I think, yeah, that's something that we have to try and confront. Yeah, because I mean, it's not as if we on the left have any sort of alternative to present to people or alternative to present to youth who are alienated here. All we have is like really fringy, cultish Marxist groups on campus and such. Um, My version of Marx is not cultish. Yeah. Yeah, it's the right but version. But it's also, you know, doesn't have any adherence. That's, it's just you. Yeah, so. it's me. Yeah, it's true. That's like the, pro the yeah, most cultish thing you can do. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's, tr we, it's true. We, we do definitely need to try to understand what's going on there. But it is it is definitely like a complicated situation, right? Because the like, yeah, on the one hand, like you were saying, Omer, the people who end up alienated in this way, particularly, uh, tend to be in North America, right? Like the people who are radicalized back home are radicalized into like actual existing groups, not in isolation, mm -hmm. and so it's a different dynamic. And we've seen obviously like white people also get radicalized and like mm -hmm. into like ISIS and like go to Syria and yeah man like, that's fucked up white people who convert to Islam and do that you guys got to stop <laughs> but yeah so there's there's clearly like yeah it's definitely one of the reactions to the modern world the fucked up modern world that we're living in and i think like a big manifestation of that is the gulf 
Hmm. Like just a manifestation of like this extreme fundamentalism plus this strange like like hyper exploitative capitalism um, is can be seen and manifests in mm-hmm. a place like the Gulf. But obviously like versions of that or like aspects of that exist kind of everywhere. Yeah, but I think like, you know, when it comes to us talking to actually existing Muslim communities, like I think leftists have a hard time with that. Even like me as a as someone who's grown up Muslim and I'm, you know, fairly conversant in like a cultural Islam, I'll have a hard time sort of interacting with like very religious Muslims and having like political conversations with them because I'm always trying to like I'm always wondering, should I frame this in Islamic terms? Should mm. I frame it in like trying to like find an interpretation? And you know, there is stuff. Uh, you know, people will point to like more cosmopolitan kind of Muslims or liberal Muslims will point to that. Well, you know, in Islam, actually, there is there's so much of like a community feel of like collectivism. As leftists, then it's like, okay, so is that what we? Is that how we're going to frame our project? That we're going to have to go through doctrine to like sort of sift it out and be like, what can we find in that? And then build a project, at least, you know, the framing of it. So to like to hook the Muslims. But then again, like as you guys were saying, like that takes for granted that Muslims have no other, or actually existing Muslims have no other for, uh, point of reference, like, are unable to think in any other terms except for religious terms. Right. And that, like their religious identity is the primary way that they look at the world. And not just the primary way, it's the only way that they can look in the world. Well, yeah, like it's like in the Arab world now, if you want to try to politically maneuver a situation, um, you need to, you have to, like even if you're a secular at heart, uh, navigate it through like religious terms. Like that's how you have to do it. And like we were talking about this before uh when Justin Fodor was on the podcast, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. If you go back to that episode, we like we talk about one of his characters in his book. It's about like breaking the siege in Gaza. It's a novel, and how um, you know a, a, like a, a secular individual, like a, the, who's who's navigating this. He's a leader in the Palestinian resistance. Um, has to like put a performance on to be taken seriously and to navigate the situation because there's you have to meet people where they're at, I suppose. But yeah, I, I do find it it to be a difficult convert like a difficult thing to navigate i do find it really helpful though right like i remember making like someone who's extremely religious i made a, a comment to them that was like would would allah be okay with a place like this and it was like uh, we were talking about a workplace that was extremely exploitative and he goes of course not you know and i was like okay look like this is a strange way to go about it but it was effective right and yeah i don't know i don't know if we should be using those kind of that kind of tactic but I, I do think, like you were saying, uh, it seems to only make sense, at least to start, where like we seem to be in such a in a position where this is like the all-encompassing thing, and so I find this is so, and it's kind of like what you guys were saying, and Karma, what you were saying about how what you discovered when you came to here in Canada, and it was like you know Islam is a much more rigid system here mm-hmm. than it was in in Jordan. And I find this, like, there's something about North American society that gives rise to these modernist, fundamentalist interpretations of Islam and how to live it. And I, I find, and I mean, not to like be discriminatory or something, but you know, there's something about like converts and their approach, especially, which is like very, it's like, okay, this is like nothing like the Islam that I know. It's very purist, no? It's very purist, yeah, and there's no cultural content. Mm. 
Yeah, but I mean, but it is kind of interesting, I guess, like, in the absence of a left project, like there is this, like, the salvation of at least the Muslim world is in sort of ridding our societies of these like cultural innovations and going back to the true Islam. And if we're able to do that, then there will be this, this revival. Right. That's what the Islamists say, right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the Islam as, as any other religion has never been sort of pure. It's always been in a context and it's sprung up in a context and it's always going to be there. And, and what would we've done with it in the diaspora is not, is also not pure. It's also this particular context that's sort of done that to to Islam. But there is this pressure to frame things in Muslim, in Islamic terms. And I, like when I've been doing community organizing in Muslim communities, like there is this pressure to, to frame even like leftist doctrine that way. And I think like there's a part of that that seems a little bit opportunistic, but also both contrived and like deceptive. But it's also like, you know, when people live their lives, when parents figure out, you know, what school to send their kids to or like, you know, where, like what job to do or how to behave with their bosses or their employees, most Muslims are not going to be like, okay, let me go check back with the scriptures about how to do this. Or let me go consult, uh, you know, imam about this. Some of them might, some of them might be like, okay, you know, I want to try to live a very consistent life. And increasingly, I think the sort of culture of Islam here is trying to do that, to trying to like be able to give you a solution for everything. And, you know, Islamists will be like, oh, come up with any problem, think of any problem in your life, and Islam will have an answer for you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I mean, I guess, you know, this, when people talk about Islamophobia in, the, in recent years, it's been like multiple parts of the world, not just in the West, where there has been policies and such that are designed to to discriminate against Muslims in various ways, right? So there seems to be like this this international kind of persecution of Muslims happening. And in most, if not all of those cases, it seems like it's, you know, just blatantly an effort to distract from economic problems where there would be universal kind of, universal political project that would be available. And that probably would um, do more to reduce religious extremism among Muslim and other religious communities than this sort of thing, which does then put religious communities up against the wall. And so then there is, again, a reaction that, you know, our, our identity is being threatened and therefore we need to double down. Mm-hmm. And so the, the sort of cultural, like, you know, religious entrepreneurs in, the, in those societies, then I was just like, see, like, this is why we need to really stick together. This is why we need to, like, be there for each other because the rest of the world is against us. Yeah, and you see this with a lot of people being feeling threatened in general, right? Like any kind of group that seems to be threatened. Um, you know, on the left, we have this, I, mean, I don't know if we want to include this or not, Amir, you can decide later. But there's this kind of like, just kind of being shitty to white people as a pass, right? Mm-hmm. We are allowed to just say whatever the fuck we want because like that's seen as somehow challenging like a structural issue Mm -hmm. uh, which i don't know how that makes sense but that's that's how it's seen right and then we see how that creates a backlash and you end up just emboldening people who maybe didn't think of themselves as like white in that way or like didn't think of themselves as like having this connection to a white identity that is like you know this pure blood thing um that will then cling on to that yeah Um, now we see stickers around toronto where say it's okay to be white 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah I totally sympathize. <laughs> yeah, it's like, because, yeah, because you're constantly being told that somehow it's not or that you should feel like it's extremely guilty. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, and in, in a different way, uh, like it's the attacks are very different, obviously, but they, it creates the same kind of uh, reaction in people. Yeah, there is this um, sort of groupism. And I mean, I think, you know, even to talk about like the Muslim community or you know, like, okay, as someone who's supposedly part of the Muslim community, I can tell you there is no such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we all hate each other. Like, you know, I don't like Arabs. The Arabs <laughs> don't like me. <laughs> There's certainly no like institutionalized structure through which... Uh, we all communicate and we, conspire. Right, that, that any, anything can get done. And so, yeah, there, there is, I mean, talking about these things in this way and framing things in this way is in itself kind of framing it in a way that's somewhat essentialist and leads us down a road that that uh, doesn't address things in the nuance that's required. And, I, and one thing I wanted to actually mention as part of this is like the term you guys are using, this diaspora. I don't consider myself as part of the diaspora of anything. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, even though like earlier I said, you know, when I was talking about going to Pakistan, I said, oh, I went back home. I mean, I do consider it back home, but I also consider like, obviously, I spent most of my life here in Canada and the last recent uh, years of my life here in Toronto. So, I mean, I obviously consider this my home, like concretely speaking, this is much more, more my home than anywhere else in the world. And so this is another sort of, you know, like people have various overlapping layered identities. Uh, you know, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Canadian, I'm a Torontonian, I'm a socialist, I am a nerd, I, I like to play video games. Uh, all of these things are a part of my uh, my identity. But I think like what that suggests is that, you know, there is a universal project to be built that can include the vast majority of Muslims because the vast majority of Muslims are working people and they would benefit from things like, you know, better public education better um you know healthcare system and if you look at any workplace and union organizing stuff although we don't you know really think of it this way but like it's only when we frame and give into the religious framing as the primary one that we then sort of trap ourselves in it mm-hmm. and i think like we if we just start off with being like yeah well you know your kids go to school you know my kids go to school your family takes public transit i do as well uh, your job is shitty, so is mine. We would benefit from a union. You know, I think like you can have conversations with people that way. And, and to think that we can't is then essentializing those people as like so different that you would need some other discourse to to pull them in. And because when you do, like because we're not we're not religious and because our primary frame of reference isn't through Islam, when we try to then use it, we are speaking at, on their terms. And so we're not going to be able to maneuver, right? And and actually, then we concede that entire territory and concede the political project uh, to be framed in Islamic terms. But if we just take for granted that, yes, people are here, they end up having to live material lives that sometimes intersect with religion, but often they do not. And so then you build a project that way. And, and there is going to be resistance. There probably is going to be resistance framed in Islamic terms as well to say that, okay, well, you know, communists have been always atheists or communists uh, insist on atheism and um, and they're anti-religion and therefore you guys being communists uh, and your project being communism is against our religion and our essential identities but again like I mean that's that has to be taken historically as well because in uh, in certainly I know in Afghanistan and Pakistan that was very deliberately done all through the 20th century that the you know progressive, 
tendencies were very deliberately pushed back by using the, the sort of specter of communism as being anti-Islam. And so like for people to react that way, um, you know, we have to deal with that. And, and actually, like, I, I think as socialists and communists, we don't really have, uh, we don't, haven't really figured out the place of religion in our, yeah, mm-hmm. in our sort of perspective. So we got to think that through rather than having knee-jerk reactions about like, no, 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 it's totally fine. Or that, yeah, I guess, fine, we're communists and so therefore we must be against religion. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's definitely true. I think that I think that's definitely especially true in like the first world. But then I do think about because there has like even though back home people relate to religion very differently, there has been an increase uh, in a certain kind mm-hmm. of Islam as well, right? And so when I when I see people trying to maneuver even back home politically, I find like we have the option to to not do that. You're right, mm-hmm. which I think is is you're you made very good points uh, about why we should try to figure out how to deal with that. And that doesn't seem to be really there doesn't seem to be much space for that there. Like there needs to be at least some you have to prove to to some extent that you're a Muslim or you're completely discredited as. Yeah. Whereas here you wouldn't be because, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people who are not Muslim. Right. And you know that that's a society you're living in. Uh, but back home, that's that's not necessarily the case. And and like that, I mean, that that's I only think that's important because it's like what's going on there obviously like relates back to here mm-hmm. and what's going to develop there in terms of if there's ever going to be a progressive movement. So, you know, we see all these revolutions happen or all these like uprisings and we are always constantly being worried about the, the Islamists taking over, but then there hasn't been a semblance of a left to, to, to take over anything like an organized left that's been able to, to, to use these opportunities to go anywhere. And then it's all, it also seems like, and I don't know if this is the case, but it, I mean, I'm not there and I don't know like all the, the 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 nuances of the situation, but it seems like you do need to have some, like you could be a secular Muslim in, in how you're presenting, but there seems to be like, you need some form of of devotion to Islam. You need to show that you're devoted in some way yeah. to be taken seriously. And I don't know what, how that's going to affect everything generally. Right. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's not just about like, well, us as leftists, we should just insist on, framing things our own way because we're not doing so in a vacuum and that the longer that the left has been marginal the more ground that uh, that islam and islamists have had and opportunities they've had they certainly have way more resources than the left does to frame things to try and take over all political argument and sort of force us to speak on their terms right so there is a historical reason for why we feel this pressure because increasing the people are there but i but it's still a contested yeah, thing yeah, and then, and i think we it's still worth contesting and you know I, what you were saying about the the arab spring and like, you know so much of that was about sort of political economic stuff and i i don't actually I haven't read much about like where islam or what like how what what role islam played in that but it seemed to not be so central no. not uh, at least not until it got sort of destroyed but so even so there is stuff there that is hopeful yeah so i mean i i would say you know taking a kind of gramscian sort of approach and and saying that well yeah so all aspects of life are terrains for contestation including religion but how we approach religion, you know, and how do we sort of frame it in our minds and in our struggles? Is it sort of a doctrinal struggle? Are we sort of arguing about 
the what the right doctrine is and maybe some people feel comfortable doing that they want to do that uh or are we approaching religion as a lived thing and that i guess that would be my preferred approach but i don't know i just always feel overwhelmed mm -hmm. uh, because i'm like okay i'm an individual i am one person that feels like very this particular way about islam and i can like yeah you know i can point to uh the way things have shifted the fact that you know it's not a, a static thing um, and that it's contextual. I can point to all these things, but that ultimately there is this majority mm. that seems to to feel very differently than me specifically, right? As someone who thinks of themselves as a cultural Muslim, right? Mm. And that doesn't mean like that like that I just kind of like obviously just go okay, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter that we don't think through these things. But I guess I just wonder what is the way through it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, there's a, there's, there is this class element to some of this stuff. And mm -hmm. I see this especially when I go back to Jordan, right? You can see that like a lot of the, the lower classes, you know, are particularly religious, mm -hmm. um, right? And, and it's like, if you dis, if you're, if you've distanced yourself from it, then you are seen as kind of an elitist, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are seen as someone who comes from the ruling classes who, who doesn't really care or who's too educated for religion essentially in this way. And and also like then you'll be seen as blasphemous or whatever. And so like a lot of people who want to connect with these communities there will have to not necessarily be religious, right? But it's like, okay, I have like some concrete examples. My aunt does a lot of work in Jordan trying to like empower women in these communities, for example. Um, and she's had a very difficult time, right? And like, She's not religious. Um, and she was very resistant, like she really resisted bringing my father into these spaces because he is, he considers himself more of a, and, and genuinely, he's not actually putting a performance on. He, he is a, he thinks of himself as a progressive, uh, not like a communist or a socialist, but just generally a progressive. And, you know, she's eventually brought him in to help out. And people have been really receptive to his ideas. Now, he's a genuine person, he's not like fronting. He is religious and he thinks like there is a better way to think about Islam. But because he like he knows his shit, right. um, people take him seriously. And I think I'm not saying I don't know if that's like the right thing to do or not. I'm just saying that I, th I think there's because of these elements, it becomes really hard mm -hmm. to think through like even like Nasser, for example, that was a, a mostly secular movement. But, you know, he would pray and th call himself a Muslim and all of these things, even though the pan-Arab movement was a secular movement. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I think that's a really good point. And I think what it suggests is that we, like, depending on where leftists are operating, we do have to be conscious of like what the dynamics are there, right? And, and of course, religion is always sort of manifest in class terms, right? Like if it's a class society, it's going to, religion's going to manifest in class terms. And so um, how open those people are going to be to different kind of political projects, it's going to be affected by their class, but also like how religion helps them so conceptualize their class and their position. Yeah. And here, uh, I mean, here as well, there's a huge uh, inequality, class inequalities within, you know, broader Muslim sort of communities, if we can say. And and I think you could probably, in my experience, see certain sort of very upwardly mobile Muslim pockets being very resistant to progressive projects mm -hmm. um, and very much buy into this um, sort of Protestant ethic of like, well, you work hard and then God rewards you. And in fact, like, you know, Islam has no problem with wealth 
and Islam has no problem with like business mm-hmm. as long as you conduct your business ethically. Right. You know, when I've tried to have these conversations with some people, if they are sort of that caste and they are upwardly mobile, they'll be like, well, there's nothing wrong with wealth. Like, and, and, you know, their interpretation would be that, well, wealth is a test from God and so is poverty. Right. And so, you know, who are we to try and say that no wealth is bad and, and poverty shouldn't exist? They'll be like, well, you know, that's what God is destined for us. This is the struggles of this world and they will be resolved in the afterlife. Right. So, on that note, <laughs> I guess uh, we'll have to wait for all of this to be resolved in the afterlife. Yeah, that's what I'm waiting for. Um, Whether or not we believe in an afterlife or not. Hey, thanks for tuning in to our third and final discussion on Islam. We'll probably continue talking about some of these themes that might come up later on. Or maybe not. Let's see. Remember to subscribe and share our content and also consider supporting us by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and becoming a patron. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.